This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features serious discussions about terminal illness and assisted suicide. Please keep this in mind when deciding if, how, and when you'll listen. For resources on these topics, visit spotify.com resources. As the saying goes, life is fleeting. As we age, our bodies slowly deteriorate, a process that, while inevitable, can be depressing. Reminded of our mortality, we often try to postpone the end. We look to doctors to help us maintain our health and, ideally, live longer. But the patients of Dr. Jack Kevorkian had a different objective. As people with terminal illnesses, all they wanted was a death they could control. Unfortunately, not everyone agreed that doctors should be allowed to aid in the business of dying. Across the nation, civilians were both shocked and incensed by Dr. Kevorkian's actions, questioning the ethics behind them. In the three decades since, no easy answers have emerged. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting, I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. 
Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to assist Alistair with some medical insight into our concluding episode of Dr. Jack Kevorkian. We pick up where Dr. Kevorkian got off the hook for helping Janet Atkins die. This case was controversial on several levels, as was the legacy of Dr. Kevorkian, and questions continue to fuel a popular debate in the realm of medical ethics. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Dr. Jack Kevorkian, a pathologist who sparked widespread controversy over physician-assisted suicide. Last week, we discussed Kevorkian's early career, challenging the ethical limits of healthcare and the events that led him to create his death machine, initially known as the Thanatron. This week, we'll track the fallout from his first assisted death and the doctor's shocking strides to innovate the right to die movement in the 1990s. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Equal parts eccentric, zealous, and polarizing, 62-year-old Jack Kevorkian plowed ahead in his fight for a person's right to end their life. It was a conclusion born of decades spent questioning what a doctor's duty was to their patients, how to reconcile appropriate care with their suffering. By 1990, Kevorkian was tired for waiting for systemic approval to act on his beliefs. That year, he successfully helped Janet Atkins die. What followed was widespread criticism. Janet had Alzheimer's disease, opening a debate about her ability to consent to her death. As the media sunk their teeth in, Countless articles painted Dr. Kevorkian as a grim reaper of sorts. After weathering one legal storm, Dr. Kevorkian was hit with a second lawsuit. County prosecutor Richard Thompson aimed to nail the doctor with a permanent injunction. This would prevent him from assisting any further patients in their deaths. Contrary to its name, a permanent injunction isn't necessarily permanent. It just may have no set duration or endpoint. It's definitely something to be taken very seriously, and it can have lasting implications for a doctor's career, particularly in regard to reputation. For a healthcare professional, a court-ordered injunction implies that they're restricted in performing specific medical interventions. Outside the realm of assisted suicide, medical injunctions can be implemented in relation to any potential harmful action that may affect a patient. For example, a court can bar a physician from prescribing opiates if they demonstrate recklessness or a disregard for relevant medical legal protocols. While Kevorkian would still have his medical license, an injunction would certainly make pursuing his particular line of work very difficult. In January 1991, seven months after Janet Adkins' death, the trial began. Lead prosecutor Michael Medelsky painted Kevorkian as an uncaring quack, calling in medical professionals to testify and question his qualifications. 
They were also critical of the steps Kevorkian hadn't taken to ensure that Janet had been presented with all of her options. As far as they saw it, Kevorkian could have at least consulted with other experts. As a doctor, Kevorkian had a unique responsibility to Janet. While it's a good thing that he urged Janet to pursue experimental treatment, I'm not sure to what extent he advocated this. However, she did take his advice to heart as she apparently tried new medication under her doctor's supervision for six months after her initial consultation. My gut tells me that Kevorkian should have urged Janet and her loved ones to be more aggressive with the experimental options, but it's hard to comment on that without specifics. I'm also not sure about the degree to which Kevorkian communicated with Janet's other doctors. The decision Janet was grappling with absolutely required multiple professionals working in tandem, and one gets the feeling that Kevorkian wasn't so on board with this. It would have been comforting to know that multiple experts had a consensus about Janet's plan, but this remains uncertain. Even 30 years later, it's a real head-scratcher. Ultimately, though, Alistair, Kevorkian did honor Janet's apparent wishes. But that seemed secondary to the prosecution, who gave daunting warnings in their arguments. Left to practice, they claimed Dr. Kevorkian might influence others to experiment. It could one day lead to mass, involuntary euthanasia, reminiscent of Nazi doctors who participated in the Holocaust. While it was an extreme hypothesis, the American Medical Association agreed that physician-assisted suicide would pose serious societal risks. Some opponents also felt that if permitted to end lives, doctors may think more about the bottom line than the health of their patients. But it was never about money for Dr. Kevorkian. He saw the trial as a complete farce brought by people who didn't understand his objectives. Janet Adkins had clearly wanted to die. This was evident in her recorded interview where she stated her wish rather plainly. Alongside this tape, Dr. Kevorkian's attorneys insisted that their defendant merely wanted to reduce suffering, even if that required life-ending actions. For many, they said, this service was a relief. One witness, 42-year-old Sherry Miller, corroborated this. She testified that, amid her struggle with multiple sclerosis, she'd found comfort in the option to end her life. If the courts ruled against Dr. Kevorkian, she'd lose that reprieve, left to slowly die. After a month of legal arguments, the court made a decision. Despite Sherry's heartfelt testimony and a fiery defense of Janet Adkins' choice to die, Judge Alice Gilbert barred Dr. Kevorkian from using his machine to assist any patients in their deaths. If caught violating the ruling, he could face contempt of court charges or worse. Outraged, his lawyers filed an appeal claiming that the judge's ruling was illegal and overbroad in terms of its scope. But it would take time for the courts to come to a decision. 
In the meantime, others were drawing attention to the very principles that formed the basis of Dr. Kevorkian's work. On March 7, 1991, Dr. Timothy Quill published a groundbreaking article in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Death and Dignity. Dr. Quill had once assisted someone in their death. His longtime patient, Diane, who was suffering terrible pain from acute leukemia. He directed her to resources about voluntary euthanasia, and when Diane requested a prescription for barbiturates, Dr. Quill complied. He walked her through the correct dosage, what amount would put her to sleep, and what would constitute an overdose ending her life. Several months later, Diane passed away. In his report, Dr. Quill listed her cause of death as acute leukemia. As her longtime doctor, Quill felt that he'd done the right thing, helping Diane avoid a life of continued pain. It was by no means a defense for Kevorkian's actions, but Quill's admission opened the conversation on a patient's right to die by contextualizing the humanity in it. Beyond the abrasiveness of Kevorkian and his unorthodox activities, there was a larger debate regarding doctors and the responsibility they have to their patients. In contrast to Kevorkian's assistance with Janet Atkins, Dr. Quill was dealing with a different monster in Diane's acute and painful leukemia. Part of this has to do with our human and societal perception of what constitutes suffering and discomfort. Acute leukemia is associated with tremendous physical pain, particularly bone pain, and sufferers also deal with frequent infections, fevers, painfully swollen lymph nodes, and shortness of breath. Despite how awful Alzheimer's is, there's a definite difference here when it comes to leukemia's physical implications on the body. Quill's course of action here is definitely more common than the public is aware of. When doctors and patients have long-standing relationships, there's some medical professionals who may make left-of-center decisions out of compassion and historical reference. Doctors usually get to know their longtime patients very well as people, adding to their in-depth and nuanced understanding of their unique medical issues. Because of this, there are times when physicians recognize that the needs of their patients are at odds with precautionary legal red tape. I've known colleagues who found themselves in this position, and the associated inner turmoil must be incredibly hard to deal with. I think Dr. Quill's confession helped illustrate publicly how these situations aren't so black and white. Widespread discussion sparked by Dr. Quill's piece softened the shock of physician-assisted death. Still, restricted by his permanent injunction, it was important for Gavorkian to fly under the radar. He spent the spring of 1991 meeting with patients in secret. And since his Thanatron had been confiscated shortly after Janet Atkins' death, Kevorkian considered new ways for his patients to end their lives. The concept he settled on would potentially allow Dr. Kevorkian to take a hands-off approach for the moment and avoid needless legal battles. It requires that a person place a mask over their face and hit a button, 
at which point a canister of carbon monoxide was released into their lungs. To help ease the process, Kevorkian planned to provide a mild sedative so the body wouldn't resist the noxious gas before the mind lost consciousness. This alternative method would have been just as successful. Carbon monoxide poisoning effectively puts someone to sleep before killing them, and any severely uncomfortable symptoms, like muscle spasming or vomiting, would come after someone was rendered unconscious. It usually takes less than five minutes for a high concentration of carbon monoxide to kill an adult, and Kevorkian's mask method would have been much quicker than committing suicide by inhaling car exhaust using a hose or enclosed garage. There could be some potential shortness of breath or slight nausea that a non-sedated person might experience before losing consciousness in this scenario. Additionally, there's the issue of anxiety, so it makes sense that Kevorkian dispensed a preceding sedative to avoid these hurdles. He really was doing everything in his power to ensure the patient wouldn't suffer. It seemed to be the objective of his entire mission, providing an end to prolonged pain. In the fall of 1991, two of his patients opted to die with his help. Up next, Dr. Kevorkian's carbon monoxide method is put to the test as his practice grows. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the podcast series, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican, to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD, and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In late 1991, 63-year-old Dr. Jack Kevorkian carefully tried to work around his permanent injunction, which barred him from assisting in patient deaths. Undaunted and still determined in his cause, he helped two patients plan their deaths. The first of them was Sherry Miller, the patient with multiple sclerosis who had testified at his civil trial. At just 43 years old, 
Sherry's debilitating illness had robbed much of her independence since she'd been diagnosed. MS is a devastating neurological illness that to this day still has no cure. It's a disease of the brain and spinal cord, and it can completely disable someone in their ability to walk or move independently. Although what causes MS isn't 100% understood, it's recognized as a probable autoimmune disease that triggers a body to attack its own tissues. MS specifically causes our immune system to attack the myelin sheath, which is a protective layer that covers our nerves. As a disease progresses, nerve fibers can become permanently damaged and drastically restricting movement. Given that Sherry had already lost control over the majority of her body, her quality of life must have been incredibly challenging. She was likely experiencing a lot of pain on top of her lack of mobility, as intense muscle spasms and stiffness are common symptoms of MS. The condition often contributes to a person's death for a number of reasons, like the disease's ability to weaken the muscles that control respiration. Sherry had limited options, unfortunately, and she likely had a fleeting time until the disease completely robbed her of any independence. Sherry finally made plans with Dr. Kevorkian to end her life. And soon, another patient followed suit. 58-year-old Marjorie once suffered constant, excruciating pelvic pain stemming from the surgical removal of benign vaginal tumors. While her diagnosis wasn't terminal, her suffering had drastically decreased her quality of life. She, too, wanted a way out. So she contacted Dr. Kevorkian, and they soon agreed on which day would be Marjorie's last. It was the same as Sherry's. Now, Sherry and Marjorie didn't know each other, but Dr. Kevorkian likely thought it best to schedule their procedures in tandem. That way, whoever went second couldn't be stopped by any legal issues caused by the former. On October 22, 1991, Dr. Kevorkian met with the pair for an interview, knowing it violated his injunction. They were each joined by their closest relatives, who were all asked to share any negative feelings about what the women wanted. Several family members talked about the impact of the upcoming loss and the void it would create. However, they ultimately respected Sherry and Marjorie's choices to die, given the quality of their lives. The next day, Sherry and Marjorie drove to a remote cabin outside of Detroit to end their lives. There, Dr. Kevorkian had built a device similar to the Thanatron for Marjorie. At about 5 p.m., with her husband by her side, Marjorie triggered the machine to release the chemicals. By 5.05, she was gone. She left a note reading, I'm so glad there's Dr. Kevorkian who can help me. I have begged him to help me for two years. After three and a half years, I cannot go on with this pain and agony. No doctor can help me anymore. If God won't come to me, I'm going to find God. 
Shortly after, in the same room, it was Sherry's turn. But her veins weren't strong enough to have an effective IV placed, so she opted to use Kevorkian's other method, releasing carbon monoxide into a face mask. She quickly lost consciousness, and by 6.15, Sherry's heart had stopped. As with Janet Adkins, Dr. Kevorkian wasted no time in alerting authorities. He called them to the cabin and reported the deaths. Critics across Michigan and the nation were quick to lambast the events. And this time, they had a notable leg to stand on. Marjorie's condition clearly wasn't terminal. Critics wondered whether her chronic pelvic pain truly substantiated Kevorkian's intervention. Some even wondered if Marjorie's condition was psychosomatic, all in her head. If that were the case, it may have been possible for Marjorie to ease her pain by working with a psychologist. Psychosomatic pain is one of the hardest things in medicine to identify, especially without access to the patient. In this case, it's unlikely that Marjorie's discomfort was purely mental. This is because the pelvis contains a lot of smooth-muscled organs, like the bladder, genital tract, appendix, and kidneys. Any injury or trauma to smooth muscle can be unbearably painful, which explains why childbirth, kidney stones, and appendicitis were such agonizing experiences. Any scar tissue that forms in smooth muscle can also severely impede normal day-to-day -day movement, and the treatment for this usually involves chronic pain medications that carry the risk of dependency. Today, we have drugs like Toradol and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that specifically target smooth muscle pain and are not addictive. It's possible that public perception of Marjorie's condition at the time was likened to hysteria. Because pelvic pain has historically been considered a female issue, the associated suffering was often viewed as exaggerated by those who were unenlightened and insensitive to women's health issues. Having helped patients with this issue myself, I can definitely assure our listeners that this pain is very real and very distressing. Regardless of the exact cause, Marjorie was clearly suffering and did receive the end she wanted with Kevorkian's help. It didn't stop others from providing their own two cents, but unfortunately that comes with the territory when a medical case becomes so public. The main problem with the armchair diagnosis, however, is that none of these other doctors or pundits had access to Marjorie, and they wouldn't. Marjorie was gone. All they could do was question Kevorkian's actions in hindsight. Despite public outcry, authorities seemed to have little legal recourse. Even though Dr. Kevorkian was in the cabin on the day of Marjorie and Sherry's deaths, their loved ones refused to give specifics on his involvement. It appeared authorities either didn't want to test the strength of the injunction while it was under appeal, or they wanted to go for larger charges. Or maybe they just felt it'd be best if the medical board dealt with the matter. Which they did 
Almost exactly a month later, on November 20th, 1991, Michigan's Board of Medicine revoked Dr. Kevorkian's medical license for his involvement in Janet Adkins' death. This went far beyond the injunction. It effectively stripped him of the ability to practice any form of medicine in the state, meaning any time he practiced moving forward, he was breaking the law. It would make Dr. Kevorkian even easier to prosecute, and he was essentially helpless to fight back. Still, Dr. Kevorkian continued meeting with new patients. If anything, the backlash only made him more determined to push forward with his cause. However, on December 3rd, 1992, the Michigan legislature passed a law that banned physician-assisted suicide outright. Authorities were ready to use it against Kevorkian, pressing charges against him in August of 1993 for assisting yet another death. But convicting him proved far more difficult than they'd expected. Kevorkian's lawyers argued that the ban was unconstitutional. Assisted death and any form of suicide was a fundamental legal right. Throughout all of this, Kevorkian maintained a steady presence in the media, boldly affirming that he would continue his work. He also had plans to broaden the scope of patients he considered eligible for his assistance. In a 1993 interview with Time magazine, he bristled at public criticisms that he had helped patients without terminal illnesses end their lives. According to the American Cancer Society, a terminal condition, by definition, is a life-limiting illness that is expected to result in permanent unconsciousness or death in the near future. Kevorkian didn't see it that way. When asked to elaborate, he stated, The condition doesn't have to be painful, as with quadriplegia, but your life quality has to be nil. On top of Kevorkian's previous actions, this take was massively controversial in the medical field. I actually agree with Kevorkian in this regard, and I really do believe this distinction matters. If a patient's physical condition renders them completely unable to care for themselves in a way that harms them psychologically, I believe they should have the right to choose their own fate. I'm confident that many physicians would agree with me here and would also prefer the American Cancer Society's interpretation be more inclusive. Although Kevorkian's precise wording might have left too much room for interpretation, I think he was on the right track in terms of considering quality of life in addition to one's mortality. Augmenting his requirements for patients who wanted to die proved another step in the evolution of Kevorkian's work. He didn't wait for the medical establishment to agree with him. He just kept at his work. By the end of 1995, Kevorkian had helped dozens of patients end their lives. It was practically a miracle that he hadn't yet been charged in a court of law, but prosecutors didn't give up. In spring of 1996, they slapped Kevorkian with assisted suicide charges in connection with the deaths of Marjorie Wants and Sherry Miller. 
This time, though, the state took a creative approach. Instead of trying to enforce a physician-assisted death ban, they argued that Kevorkian had violated a nearly century-old common law rather than any law legislated by the state of Michigan. And on April 1st, 1996, the trial began. True to his nature, Dr. Kevorkian wore a colonial outfit to court, which included a white powdered wig. He wanted to make a mockery of the custom that the state's prosecution was leaning on. Perhaps even more effective were the witnesses who spoke on Kevorkian's behalf. Sympathetic family members of patients Kevorkian had helped came to the stand, offering gratitude for what the doctor had given their loved ones. As matters wore on, the jury found it increasingly difficult to see Dr. Kevorkian as a criminal. The prosecutor may have been making new arguments this time around, but Kevorkian was ultimately acquitted. Yet again, Dr. Kevorkian had managed to elude prosecutors. And by 1998, he helped over a hundred people end their lives. Still, innovating was important to him. And at a certain point, Kevorkian found a new way to push the envelope, one that would give him a direct hand in the deaths of his patients. Rather than physician-assisted suicide, he now sought to provide medical euthanasia. Naturally, this would make Kevorkian much more vulnerable to the law. He knew a court case would no doubt come, but he'd made up his mind. He'd fight to provide the most dignified elective death he could conceive. Up next, Kevorkian risks his freedom by taking the life of his first patient. Now, back to the story. By 1998, 70-year-old Jack Kevorkian was at a crossroads. For the past eight years, he'd helped about 130 people end their lives, overcoming near-constant legal hurdles. So far, he'd escaped conviction, which prompted him to test the limits even further. Currently, even though Dr. Kevorkian made all the preparations, his patients still had to initiate the process. It was on them to press the buttons that released the necessary chemicals, a burden that Kevorkian thought was mentally stressful and needless. There was also a higher risk of procedure going wrong, even if his machines worked flawlessly. Human error was hard to calculate ahead of time, and if someone didn't press a button hard enough, or if timed chemical releases were even the slightest bit off, it could result in undue pain for those who trusted him. The best service Kevorkian felt he could offer was the act of bringing death to a patient himself. This hands-on approach changed what Kevorkian was doing from physician-assisted death to euthanasia, a serious distinction that posed severe legal consequences. By altering this one aspect of his practice, Kevorkian had changed everything. 
the distinction between physician-assisted death and euthanasia opened a ton of ethical and legal concerns. By committing the act himself, instead of having patients behind the metaphorical wheel, he effectively adopted much more of the responsibility. Euthanasia is a scary subject because it conjures horrible historical precedent that highlights its negatives as a viable and legal practice. One of the most common concerns is one that Alistair actually mentioned earlier in the episode, and it has to do with doctors valuing profit over human life. Many feel that implementing some form of legal euthanasia would incentivize physicians to unnecessarily choose this option, which is a terrifying thought. For many, this change represented the crossing of a dangerous line. And despite all of Kevorkian's efforts promoting physician-assisted death, only Oregon had passed a law allowing it. With the healthcare field dragging their feet, Kevorkian likely thought that performing medical euthanasia himself might expedite matters, or at least get people talking about it. And in fall 1998, he found the perfect candidate to see his objective through. 52-year-old Thomas Yuck was an accountant, avid racing enthusiast, and a loving husband. But despite his abundant life, Yuck suffered from amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, commonly known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Over the past two years, he'd lost much of his mobility. He could do little more than raise a few fingers and struggled to breathe as he spoke. Within a few months, he might be dead. Similar to the other neurological illnesses we've discussed, ALS is debilitating and can progress quite quickly. After someone first starts noticing symptoms, like a lack of coordination, unusual fatigue, or slurred speech, it usually takes about nine months to a year to establish a firm diagnosis of ALS. Although the average expected survival time is about three to five years, some people live with the disease for upwards of 10 years before succumbing to it. Because the disorder causes a progressive deterioration of muscle function, people with ALS usually die from respiratory failure due to the weakening of the chest muscles that control our breathing. Some common end-stage symptoms of ALS include muscle paralysis and the inability to chew, swallow, or breathe without assistance. This is one of the reasons that choking to death is a relatively common demise in patients with ALS. As sad as it is, Yuck's prognosis at this point was grim. Yuck was terrified of slowly choking to death. He didn't want to suffer in the end. Contacting Dr. Kevorkian gave him the security of knowing that he had an out if he needed it. So, in 1998, he got in touch. Kevorkian's interest was piqued. Yuck's condition made him the ideal candidate to receive euthanasia from Dr. Kevorkian rather than using a machine to kill himself. Because his disease had severely reduced his muscle control, it was simply safer for Dr. Kevorkian to take charge of the procedure. He didn't initially reveal this to Yuck, but he agreed to help the man. 
As in previous cases, he scheduled an interview with the patient and his family. In a taped interview in September of 1998, Yuck said he wished to die. When Dr. Kevorkian suggested that he perform euthanasia on Yuck, he was hesitant at first, likely because he would be the first patient. But after Dr. Kevorkian spoke to the safety it afforded him, Yuck consented. Yuck signed a piece of paper to further confirm that he'd requested to die. But Dr. Kevorkian stalled, asking Yuck if they could hold off for a month. Yuck couldn't agree. His condition was getting worse by the day, so the doctor pressed for a week-long delay instead. Yuck initially said yes, but the next night, his brother made an impassioned call to Gavorkian. Yuck was in distress and feared that the end was coming. His breathing was labored and he had further trouble swallowing. Scared and wanting to exit the world on his terms, he urged Dr. Kevorkian to help him. The doctor arrived at Yuck's home the next night, September 17, 1998. Yuck was alone. Dr. Kevorkian had advised the rest of the family to leave so they couldn't be implicated in their loved one's death. Kevorkian didn't waste time. He set up a camera to film the procedure and once again asked Yuck if he wanted to die. When Yuck agreed, Kevorkian had him sign another piece of paper. Then, he got to the task at hand. He inserted an IV line into Yuck's right hand before pushing Seconol, a barbiturate, to put Yuck to sleep. Next came a muscle relaxant. After that, Kevorkian triggered the potassium chloride to stop Yuck's heart, effectively killing him. As Kevorkian's first patient, Janet Atkins, this procedure was sound when it came to the science. It would have been a painless process for Yuck, and as a doctor, I can't really see this being done in a more humane way from a pharmacological perspective. His methods made sense, and by administering the medications in this order, he ensured that Yuck would have gone very peacefully. Despite the clear compassion behind his technique, it's hard to forget that Kevorkian was doing something deemed completely illegal by the medical system. This naturally gives one pause. And Kevorkian's work wasn't done. Once Yuck had passed, Kevorkian reached out to the producers at 60 minutes, hoping to make a public statement. On November 22, 1998, 60 Minutes aired the piece, broadcasting Yuck's final moments to 22 million viewers who watched from their living rooms in awe. The shocking video showed Kevorkian injecting Yuck with a cocktail of chemicals, followed by Yuck's shallow breaths as they slowed to a halt. It was the first time the majority of the public had seen the practice. Now, Yuck had consented to sharing the footage. But regardless, the segment sparked disapproval from many who felt such a private moment should have been kept that way. 
Still, Dr. Kevorkian defended his actions on air. He said, I'm fighting for me. This is a right I want. I'll be 71. You don't know what will happen when you get older. I may end up terribly suffering. I want some colleague to be free to come and help me when I say the time has come. While he had a point, he wasn't really expecting his soapbox moment to elicit any mercy from the court. He'd wanted to push them into action anyway. Either they'd innovate the law or they'd charge him with murder. Both courses of action would create ripples in the healthcare system, which was now somewhat divided over the issue. Three days after the 60 Minutes piece aired, prosecutors charged Dr. Kevorkian with first-degree murder and delivery of a controlled substance without a medical license. Unlike the previous cases, Dr. Kevorkian had much less legal ground to stand on, given that he directly killed Yuck. Even worse, the judge barred Yuck's relatives from testifying that he'd consented to the procedure, claiming that Michigan law didn't recognize consent as a legal defense for murder. Instead, the jury needed to determine whether Kevorkian had been the one who killed Yuck. From the 60 Minutes footage, that was all but certain. In March of 1999, after more than two days of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict. Guilty, but of second-degree murder, a lesser charge that didn't carry the possibility of a life sentence. In April, a judge dealt him between 10 and 25 years in prison. At a minimum, Kevorkian faced six years behind bars before he could request parole. Kevorkian had cemented himself as a martyr for the cause. Somewhat expectedly, the public reaction was mixed. Yuck's brother defended Kevorkian, saying, The truth is my brother made that choice. He initiated the contact and Dr. Kevorkian fulfilled his wishes. Kevorkian, of course, filed an appeal, but that failed in Michigan court in 2001. And in 2004, the US Supreme Court decided not to hear his case. He was eventually released in 2007 when he was 79. He continued to speak out in support of his ideas, but didn't assist in any more deaths. He made several appearances on television to talk about his past and voice his opinions about what happened to him, but his time for radical action had passed. In a 2010 interview with Anderson Cooper, Kevorkian balked when asked if he thought he'd had an impact. Of course, he'd brought the subject to the mainstream, but most doctors still couldn't help end a patient's suffering by taking their lives. Ultimately, he wouldn't live to see ubiquitous legalization of physician-assisted death that he fought so hard to introduce. At some point, he was diagnosed with liver cancer. Then, in May of 2011, at 83 years old, he was hospitalized for problems with his kidneys and heart. On June 3rd, 2011, 
he died of a blood clot in the lungs, known as a pulmonary embolism. In the years after Kevorkian first assisted patients in dying, 11 states have legalized the practice. Regardless of Kevorkian's zeal, it's hard to deny that he made a huge impact. He certainly helped the medical community examine a taboo issue in greater depth, which despite his criminality, allowed for a more evolved and understanding approach to treating death, a patient's end-of-life rights, and the doctor's role in all of this. Whether one views it as good or bad, I truly believe his legacy opened up a discussion that desperately needed to be had. His actions in life were polarizing, but there's no doubt that Kevorkian exposed some significant blind spots in how we relate to such a sensitive issue. Undoubtedly, though, there are some who may not view it as such. Kevorkian's legacy evolves as medicine and societal ethics do. Like all ethical dilemmas, there are positives and negatives that emerge when considering Kevorkian's motives and the service he provided for his patients. Perhaps the biggest victims to the right to die movement are the families of those who choose to die, left to grieve their loss. At the same time, however, death comes for everyone. Dr. Kevorkian simply sped up that process for his patients. He provided them control over their end, which may be the most humane gift for a person otherwise condemned to suffer. The question stands. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast shows like Medical Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 